I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is cultural appropriation. We are joined by Dr. Baruti Capano. Dr. Capano is professor and department chair of the Department of Multi-Platform Production in the School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University. He received his PhD in English, and his research interests include popular culture, black masculinity, and African Americans in the radio industry. And he recently co-edited the book Soul Thieves, The Appropriation and Misrepresentation of African American Popular Culture. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, so we have been just blessed to meet and have today as a guest Dr. Baruti Capano. And he has a book called Soul Thieves, The Appropriation and Misrepresentation of African-American Popular Culture. So I want to ask a couple of questions. One, who is Baruti Capano? Because oftentimes... People will have black people in representation on their podcasts or, you know, on their panels. And they want to know the things you do, but they don't know, want to know, like, the substance of who you are. So who are you? And then I would love for you to tell us more about your name. First of all, uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I am humbled by the invitation And I applaud uh, the effort here. This is very important. I think this is at the essence of what we need as a nation is to engage in conversation. And I know sometimes the conversation can be difficult, but it's okay to have difficult conversations. So that's that's the first thing. I am Baruti Capano. I begin with who I am personally, because for me, that's the most important part of my life. I am a husband and a father first before I am anything else. I have a wonderful wife. We've been married for, uh, no, I better get this right now, Come uh, 22 on. years. All right. <laughs> for 22 years, and we have uh, two sons. Awesome. And we are, we're very proud of the work that we've been able to do as, as a family. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I, who I am professionally is very much connected to who I am personally. I have been in academia for 30 plus years. I'm currently at uh, Morgan State University. Uh, I arrived at Morgan State University in 2005. I chaired um, one of the largest, probably the largest academic department on the campus for five years. We were organized to become an academic school. I chaired uh, one of the departments within that school. And then I became assistant dean for global research and um, assistant dean for global research and global graduate programs. Awesome. Uh, I am back in the classroom now full-time as as a a full professor. I am engaged in research. I am uh, in the midst of conducting, uh, producing a full-length video documentary on house music, most specifically uh, Baltimore's role in popularizing house music. Uh, So that's that's part of what I'm doing academically. That's awesome. Um, 
that's I'll stop there for kind of who I am. There's much more, but I'll I'll stop. There. Cool. Yeah. And then, wow. Uh, well, and then just to recue the um, for your name, the story of. So uh, I am. I graduated from. Well, let me stop back. I was born in Baltimore, born and reared in, in Baltimore, from what we would call very simple folks. My dad was uh, born in North Carolina. He was literally a cotton picker. His um, family, uh, we were um, sharecroppers. Yep. That's who we were. Yeah. And uh, my father was named, he was the first of my grandmother's children, uh, and he was named for the son for whom that fam- my family sharecropped. Mm. And my father gave me that name. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I get that. My mother grew up in Baltimore and the projects of Baltimore. She became pregnant in high school, never finished. My dad made it through the eighth grade. No one in my either side of my family had ever attended college. I did not know what the SAT was. I thought it was only the past tense of the verb sit until <laughs> the 11th grade. So I was not on track to attend college. Wow. Uh, but I did attend college, uh, eventually making my way to Morgan and at Morgan, an historically black college, I was exposed to history, to literature, uh, buying about black people and ideas that I never, I didn't know existed. Yeah. And it was there that I, I challenged myself. I said, well, I directly have a name that is connected to an oppressive, racially oppressive history. Yes. I'm named after someone who exported my family. Yeah. That's not something I, I carry as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. I said that uh, maybe one day I would meet this wonderful woman and we would uh, talk about getting married. I'm doing all this as a freshman now. I love <laughs> A freshman <laughs> at a university thinking about my future. And I said, well, maybe one day uh, we could uh, we would meet, I would meet this woman. We would talk about what her last name was going to be, whether it was going to be hyphenated. Hey, I had an idea. Maybe I'll, we'll take a new family name. And fast forward many years forward, I meet uh, Monifa, my wife. Uh, mm. And we had that conversation. Uh, hey, what, what can we do in terms of name? She said, well, why don't we find a name that speaks to who we are, that gives us a challenge. So Kopano is a name that's from Botswana in Southern Africa. It's right north of South Africa. And that name means union or unity. So it's a charge for us that when we step out of this space, wherever we are, we behave like Kopanos. That's, it means something to be a Kopano. Yes. Uh, the first name um, is Baruti. That also is from Botswana. Uh, it means teacher. That's my mission. That's my goal. That is what I am here to do, whatever my profession is. And for whatever it's worth, uh, my middle name is Namdi, and that's from Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, Namdi is the name of Namdi Ezekwe, who was the first president of Nigeria after it gained, it gained its independence from Britain. It, mean, it means father's name lives on. Mm. It is a name that we've given to both of our sons for their middle names. So there is this connection that they have, a charge that they have. Their names mean something. Mm -hmm. And so that was a part of my own way of reckoning my own racial consciousness. And I thought it was an easy uh, first step to take, and I did that. So it's something about Blackness that is so beautiful. And, you know, everything that you were speaking just now, like, deeply resonated with me on a level that, to be quite honest, if you you tell uh, your average white person this information, they're like, yeah, that's great, you know, that type of thing. But for me, 
there was something like bubbling on the inside. You know, when you said uh, that you're the son of sharecroppers, cotton pickers, same. That's my story. Both my parents, very young, sharecroppers, um, picked cotton from the South, um, family first, um, you know, just for the, the as, as far as the black family. I've been married for 24 years, and um, just what, it's not even about, you know, when, when you look at this black couple, there's this black couple, but just all the things that got them where they are. And just this journey of we're going to establish who we are and as a family unit, as a community, like this is our, this is our, our nuclear, you know, this is our, our hub. And to designate, you know, names, like name meaning, uh, people make fun of black folk because we be naming ourselves and our kids. We name kids funny names and or, or what people would think are funny names like uh, the song says, but um, song says, don't hate on us, we're fabulous. And, I, just the just the deliberate, intentional effort to name um, your child in a way that represents their identity and culture, um, and then just pushes them forward. And then you falling into college and going to Morgan State and being exposed to that 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 you know blackity blackness in all aspects uh, in a- academically. Um, seeing, I'm sure, black professors and people engaging, you know, you on a different level um, than you probably would have gotten at another university. Um, coming from, like, Baltimore, like, I just think about Nina Simone's song, Baltimore. Um, and then I think about the most recent, like, TikTok song, Wipe It Out, that song. I love, I love that song. I love to see that young man. He is, like, when he's dancing and just the pride of Baltimore. So when you're telling me, you, you, you know, who you are, I'm hearing your words, but it's, like, the depth of it. Uh, it just resonates so deeply. And then having black sons. And so there's that motivation. Having a, a black wife. Her name's Monifa. Just that black identity. Like layers and layers and layers. So thank you. I just want to, you know, just take a moment, like a Selah moment, and just like kind of rest in that and not just, okay, this is who you are and let's go to the next question. I just want to acknowledge and affirm like, all these things that you shared that have so much, like you shared this, but then there's like all this depth. And I just, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about cultural appropriation. And before we kind of dive into that and kind of explore it, I'd love, Dr. Capano, for you to kind of give me an elevator pitch of what, what cultural appropriation is just in like a very, you know, I'm a very average person, so I need it to be pretty compact for me to understand it. And then we can kind of dive into it and explain it. But to an average white person, cultural appropriation, uh, I'm assuming that they couldn't just define it. And so it's almost like this, it's not like elusive, but it's, you know, we're almost scared to even put a definition on it. Uh, who gets to define it? And, you know, we can get into all that, but I'd love to hear just like, what's a quick elevator pitch into that before we kind of really dig into the Thank you. That's a wonderful place to begin. I think, in short, what we're talking about here with cultural cultural appropriation as it relates to Black folks is that um, I, I quote Marimba Ani. She was known as Donna Richards. She said that we, talking about Black people, we transformed our suffering into an opportunity to express spirit. It's a very powerful thing. So out of Black suffering... 
beginning in uh, the the slave fields, we created field songs and hollow songs. We created the blues later. We created jazz, which is said to be America's only indigenous art form. When folks took out of the public school systems music classes, what did we do? We took our turntables and we took our turntables and we pushed it in one direction and it said... <laughs> and we took our voices and we created, as the song said, we made music with our mouths. In Washington, D.C., we took trash cans, threw the trash on the ground, turned the trash cans upside down, and we beat on the back of the trash cans and we created go-go. So constantly we find black men and black women creating mostly out of their suffering yes. art. Not yes. art for people to make money off necessarily, but art as a way just to survive. The first yes. person who said, okay, we're going to put this, the lyrics together, they weren't thinking about uh, sneaker endorsements down the road. It was just a way to be a person, to find some sense of personhood. Other folks came and they saw, oh, wow, that's creative. We can make money off of that. Yeah, We can, we can control the people and their behavior by dictating which aspect of this art the world will see. Mm. That isn't, I mean, that's as nutshell as I can get. We often are at the forefront of creating artistic expressions, we being Black folks. And then other corporate interests come in and dictate the direction of those pursuits. In a nutshell, that's what cultural appropriation is. Yes. Okay. So I loved something that you said earlier, Katina, as we were kind of uh, discussing the, the conversation about the difference between appropriation and appreciation is acknowledgement. So uh, can you just kind of talk about that a little bit? Like uh, for white people, like how do you appreciate without appropriating? Um, how can they appreciate black culture in a way that elevates black culture and doesn't steal black culture? Yeah. A wonderful question. I think one of the things that, that has to happen, and this is very difficult to do in a society that's based around commercial interests, commercial exploitations. So in that sense, that's not just a race issue. Mm-hmm. We, we introduced the word of intersectionality, where different issues meet, cross. So the issue of race then meets with the issue of class, the, of economics. Uh, so there are contradictions. But in, in, in a nutshell, what we're attempting to do is to allow these artistic expressions to exist on their own terms mm-hmm. and to allow them to move in the ways that they naturally will be dictated. Uh, there was a, a point where... Um, it was Alan Iverson is an example. Alan Iverson introduced a look, a feel, an expression that the NBA, the world had never seen. Yep. The way that he wore the, his hair, mm-hmm. uh, the adornment of his body with tattoos. And initially, the NBA, because it had not seen that or it did not want it representing, quote unquote, its brand, it resisted that. Mm-hmm. But this was something that was natural for this particular individual. And so here's here's the appropriation. The appreciation part is, you know, this is an individual. You know, he is expressing himself. He really isn't doing any damage to the brand. We're going to let this person be. Well, what happened instead was, well, you know what? We can control that. We can make money off of that. And so now you saw the fusion, okay, the resistance of uh, hip-hop sensibilities to NBA 
we went from one extreme to the, to, to the next where those things are sometimes there. You don't know what, which is which. Like I, my, my sons participate in the gaming system. And sometimes I'm thinking they're listening to songs and they're playing these sports video games where the music has become such an integral part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's one part that we can say we appreciate that. Uh, that is an appreciation. Um, but there's another aspect where we could see that more as, well, no, there are folks being commercially exported, um, although individuals are making money off of that. So um, I don't know that there are, I could give you five rules. These are the five rules. Uh, if you do this, this is appreciation. If you do this, this is appropriation. I think just allowing folks natural space to be um, and engaging in conversation when folks are saying, well, we find this to be uh, offensive or appropriation to pause, to listen, let's engage in conversation yes. before we reach a conclusion that it is or it isn't. Dr. Capano, maybe it sounds like, okay, people are are stealing something and we're getting closer to maybe my brain understanding this exactly. But it, it seems like an average person would be thinking, okay, so if a black or brown person came up with this unique style of X, Y, Z, whatever it is, and somebody came along and says they want to make money off of it, and they do, but wouldn't that person make money off of it too? Like what's, I guess, what's the, what's the problem there of, because of, doesn't everybody win in that situation? Like who yeah, loses one, in that? Wonderful question. Wonderful question. And then, um, yes, we deal with this in our book, Soul Thieves, The Appropriation and Representation of African-American Popular Culture. So I write the introductory essay and I, I deal with that very, very question. And we use the example of the rapper. This is an older example, but it, it still it matters. It's an example of Too Short. Mm. And Too Short tells the story of literally having a, what he says is a verbal agreement with the head of the record label. He said, listen, I'm making all of this music and it's, it's debauchery. I'm, 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 I'm literally, I am disrespecting women in my songs. I have a porn star on my CD cover. Mm. Um, I'm, I, I am glamorizing the use of drugs and alcohol. This is not a negativity there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that they reached an agreement that he could make another CD to balance. A positive. A positive, right? And um, you say, when it was time to do that, that would not happen. They would not allow that to happen. Hmm. So yes, Too Short made money. But one of the things that I say, and we say in the book, and that I maintain, is that when we use the term soul thieves, it's not just about exploiting folks financially. Yeah. It is about exploiting our souls, the very essence of who we are, of giving definition to what it means to be black in very limited ways. And these are not not images that just white people look at and see. These images go out all over the world. These are images that little black boys and little black girls internalize. And they think the only way that I can be successful as a, or the quickest way to be successful as a black woman is that I have to be in this sexually clad, these sexually clad outfits. We have other folks dictating these agendas. Mm-hmm. Yes, people, black folks are making money along the way, but there's an expense to the very essence of what it should mean to be a human being, often, not always, but often, that goes along with this and this exploitation. Yeah. And that is what many of us object to. Yeah, I think of so movies and television, how I even, as a white person growing up in a very white culture, uh, like my early upbringing, 
to me, I noticed and it stood out as a child in like the 90s that the roles that black people would be cast in in movies and television were oftentimes one-dimensional and comedic roles, that they wouldn't be cast in serious roles or in multi-dimensional roles. And it's like, who's doing that? Who's controlling that? Yes, those black people who are movie stars are making money, so white people could just dismiss it as, well, they're making a lot of money for the role that they're cast in. But it's white people are uh, in that space, the ones who control the studios, the ones who control the funding, the producers, the directors, and the uh, the ones doing the casting. And so it's white people who are uh, basically dictating to black people how they can use their talent in a way that's still, like black people in that context would make money, but the white people would make the lion's share of the money because they're deciding, you know, they're deriving the profits from the actual goods that are created and controlling the black talent. Uh, and then now, like having since learned that then there's many cases where black people would come up with stories and pitches for movies that would just not get funding, would not get made, um, so that black talent was in many cases wasted with no opportunity to actually uh, like create the... I mean, even the Black Panther kind of uh, is an example of how much have we missed out on as a culture. That's right. Because black people... Like how many other Black Panther movies didn't get made because white executives wouldn't give the space for black directors, black writers, black talent to have a multi-dimensional opportunity to really become... Like uh, to, to to fully make what what they wanted to make and or command, had the vision to make. yeah, and command our own experience and have like self agency, like that. That's the thing um, that's missing is that white people will dictate and they will fund, but you have to fall in line with what they want versus you know, and and so you lose you lose like the creative process, you lose. The, po- the black poetic license, you lose the black perspective, right, doctor? Yeah, so I'll give an example. And then uh, I think that uh, we also need to talk about how I think things are um, getting better in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was not terribly long ago, I guess maybe 20 years ago, uh, I was pursuing my PhD studies. And there were a group of women in the program with me from various Middle Eastern countries. And uh, through a mutual classmate, they invited me to sit with them at tea uh, at a local cafe. And I was like, oh, this is cool. We're going to talk about something in our program. And the first question that floored me, uh, why is it that uh, all black men are criminals? That was the first question that they asked me. Um, Why is it that you all sell drugs? Why? What kind of man leaves his wife and children abandon them. So uh, their questions uh, are surrounded by their images of Black people, in this particular case, Black men, that they saw coming to them in their part of the world through mass media outlets. Right. And those images were unidimensional. Certainly there are Black men who abandon their children, who sell drugs, who do awful things. But we have that in every group. That's not something that's unique to to black folks. But what was not happening, particularly at that, at that time, there wasn't a counterbalance. 
there weren't uh, other um, messages, other images that uh, that were readily available to these folks. And so I think that's one of the dangers that we talk about when you have corporate interests, when you have folks outside of the culture, where you have folks who have no commitment to the development of communities, deciding on which images the world will see, the world internalizes these things. Mm. But I do see that in many ways, people are really working to change the narrative. I go back again to what you are doing here with this podcast. This is an absolutely earth-shattering effort that should be applauded, that should be supported in every way possible. Thank you. We see movies like If Bill Street Could Talk, Queen and Slim, uh, the most recent Will Smith depiction of Venus and Serena's dad, King Richard, Mm -hmm. that attempts to give different images of Black people. No one is perfect. So these people are flawed individuals. But these are folks who are redemptive, who have human value and dignity that we're able to see in a full range of other uh, media images from other communities. So let's talk about just the multi-dimension, like black people as multi-dimensional beings. And I really want to hear from you because right now we're in an era where black women specifically are commanding their sexuality in a way that they have not been able to um, historically um, from the you know for for the from their 400 year history in this country, when you think about black women coming uh, to this country specifically for the purposes of of rape, breeding, um, and just how that was perpetuated for many years and like for centuries, and then now we're seeing people like Megan the Stallion and Cardi B and. What people are, it's, it's, it's almost like a return to the negative stereotype. But for me personally, even though it's not something that I would do or even put, put, uh, endorse, I, I, what I see is black women are commanding their, their sexuality. They're not the video vixen. They are, they are their own um, person and entity. And they're a sexual be- being with, with, without the confines of whiteness or misogynoir. But then also where you do see the stories of people who are flawed. Black people don't get to be flawed. And so everybody's white story is redemptive in a way that black story, because King Richard comes out, well, he did this and he did that. Like it's, it's an immediate attack, whereas we see all of these people throughout American history who have been elevated and given uh, monuments and they had, they enslaved people and they raped people and they did all this stuff and they can be, they can be heroes, but black people who have imperfect stories can't be heroes. So I want to talk about the two of those things. Okay. If I understand uh, this question here, this is very, for me, this is very complex. Yeah. And this is a question that I am still grappling to to understand. Yeah. Um, so let me make sure I have uh, a, a correct date before I, I mess my myself up here. Oh no. Um, <laughs> Take your so time. there is there is a a parallel that I am attempting to make. Um, I teach a course at uh, Morgan State University entitled Communication and the Black Diaspora. Mm. And that course seeks to uh, make some parallels between what's happening in the United States now and what has happened historically uh, in the United States to other parts of the world where we find Black people. 
So in that class, we introduced students to um, a woman who was born from a slave parent and a non-slave parent in in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Brazil, of course, was uh, uh, where the Portuguese set up their their shop and where slavery uh, began, and this form of slavery began. Mm-hmm. And so Chica de Silva was born in the 1700s, um, and she eventually uh, became, she married, or even if it's common law marriage, uh, she married uh, one of her enslavers, and mm-hmm. she became incredibly rich. One of the richest people, women, in all of Brazil, um, Just and, and by that society's definition, she was an incredible success. Mm-hmm. She did that. She denounced her blackness. Mm-hmm. She also, when she inherited slaves, she didn't free them. <laughs> mm-hmm. She kept them enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was able to be what we would call successful mm-hmm. by our definition of success. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I, I hope this doesn't come across as a poor analogy. I'm, I don't mean to be insulting. No. So re- recently, uh, Rihanna, Mm-hmm. was recognized by Barbados. Barbados, mm-hmm. Barbados recently uh, ended his, like, last week, <laughs> his uh, British colonial rule. Yes. Uh, and became an independent, became a republic. And they recognized Rihanna, gave her some, some distinction. Uh, and so I, really, I was, I was torn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and my, my wife and I had a conversation. I'm not sure that we're on the same page. And I said, well, Rihanna is in the same realm of a Chica da Silva to me Mm -hmm. in some ways. The body was the gateway, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was through the, the, if you will, the being exploited sexually. And Rihanna's particular case, presenting herself as a body, as a sexual object, Mm -hmm. along the lines of a Josephine Baker Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and other folks who have uh, worked in that realm. But on the other hand, as my wife points out, but you know she's you know listed as a billionaire now, and she has her own company, and she employs black folks, and she's been able to do these wonderful things. Inclusion. So I would say that this is something that I'm struggling with mm-hmm. in terms of the, the, the how the body, the black woman's body, has been used as personal gateways for individual success. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does that mean to the little four-year-old black girl who wants to be a billionaire? Right. I mean, is that the model? Is this the path? Are there other ways for her? So I don't know. I don't know that I have a clear answer to it's a, to it. There's question. a tension. There's definitely a tension, right? It's tough. It's it's tough because as a race, black people, you know, I grew up hearing, okay, Katina, we got to save the race. So everything you do is representation. You got to, you know, you got to look this way and be this way and you know, even cutting my, you know, my hair was like I could almost sit on and that's coveted in the black community and I cut it off. And so, you know, because I have black and native, my great, great, my great grandmother was a Native American and she like lost her mind about me cutting my hair. And there's this burden as a black woman um, to carry the race in a way that is dignified and just all the things that are acceptable, really, in my opinion, by white culture. But then what about when white people do it? And they're st- like, we, we had a person, we had a person in the White House who was known for what she did sexually. There are images of her on the internet 
And she is still this redemptive, oh, we have a gracious, beautiful, wonderful, bra, 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 bra. But the person that came before her was a disgrace because her arms were bare with all these degrees and all this, could have been the president herself, you know, all this, all this credit, like there's a tension there. I think mm-hmm. for me, the underlying question is, and you can let me know if we're moving this too radically for you at this point. I think the, the question is really, what is at the heart of the tension that exists, um, mostly between black and white? We call it the racist, but this is really, in this particular country, what is at the heart of the black-white racial tension? Mm. Uh, and I think that, um, and you didn't have not asked this question yet, but I think one of the things that this podcast shows is the power, the potential of white America to make things better. Um, and I think what we, what we have right now, right in front of us, we have this country's reaction to critical race theory and the 1619 Project as examples of what's wrong and what potentially can be right about writing where we are. So I have my students looking at both critical race theory, critical race theory coming from legal studies scholarship in the 1970s, Kimberly Crenshaw, Delgado, and Derek Bell popularizing that there is something structurally built into the United States DNA that racism is structurally embedded into it and that they focused on the legal system that in order to understand what's happening in a legal system, you have to put racism at the, at the center of it. And that racism is part of everyday life. It's not the same as saying that all white people are evil or bad or racist. It is saying that every aspect of this country is formed around the issue of race and if we do not acknowledge that, we could never, we're never going to get better as a country. So I think it's really important that that's what critical race theory is. The 1619 Project is a project that the New York Times newspaper, New York Times Magazine, can commission in the year 2019 that was meant to acknowledge the 400th anniversary of when slavery was officially set said to begin in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. A black woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones, is really the architect of this this project. In essence, this long-form journalism piece that the New York Times uh, released in August of 2019 uh, really seeks to reframe American history. So one of the things I said I would say to you is if America does what it's, it's supposed to do, there will you would have to change the name of your podcast. Black history for white people? We wouldn't need that because there would be no black history. There would just be history. If we tell the story correctly, we are, we are yeah. by definition telling black history. We're saying that every aspect of the foundation of this country, the way that its its wealth was formed, the basis for really democracy, some of the most important United States Supreme Court decisions that have ever existed, Plessy versus Ferguson, Mm -hmm. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. At the heart of these 
decisions really was the issue of race. Mm -hmm. So in telling the story about America, we are telling the story about black people and telling the story about black people. We are telling the story about America. If you saw the Netflix series High on the Hog, where we're looking at the culinary history of America, we are looking at the history of black people. So that essentially is where ultimately we should be heading towards an honest assessment. And this is the thing I will also say Mm -hmm. to white America. White America, you are no different than any other group. You don't have to be ashamed that a part of your history, a part of your history, um, you find that you have committed atrocities. That's true for every group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before black folks and white folks ever came in contact with each other, black folks in their respective spaces also did awful things to other people. Folks from Asian societies have done awful things to other people. What seems to be unique here particularly for the white American, is a collective refusal to acknowledge that past, Hmm. that present, Mm -hmm. and a collective effort to rectify the future. And that's where there's a sticking point that we've got to, we've got to, we've just got to address that. So we have some examples. We have Brown University. We have Georgetown University. We have a number of uh, universities that have been forced to acknowledge that their presence is made possible mm. in part or in whole because of slavery. Brown University, uh, 2006, Ruth Simmons, when she was president of Brown mm-hmm. University, the first African-American ever to be president of any Ivy League school, commissioned uh, a, um, a panel to look at that university's uh, relationship to slavery and found that, hey, we in large part, we don't have a university but for slavery. Um, the current president uh, of Brown commissioned a follow-up to that report. But here's where, here's where, where we're going with this. Uh, pretty much he echoed the things that the first report said, but the students of Brown, and I mean largely many of the white students are saying, we must correct this wrong. Mm. And that is very encouraging that we have a level of consciousness among this generation of, some generation of white uh, young white folks who are saying this is not correct. Georgetown University was about to go under many years like ago. What? They sold all of its 15 slaves. And by selling those 15 slaves, Georgetown University was able to thrive right. as a university. They have literally been able to find the descendants of those those folks who, who still have descendants. And they said, okay, well, we will offer you special consideration for admission. Hey, bro, but, but, <laughs> wait a minute. You're telling me you don't exist, but by selling my great, great, great grandmama, and now you're going to tell me I got to now take out a loan of $75,000 a year? That, that's not right. <laughs> so what we have, we have many white students at Georgetown saying, that's not right. And so I believe mm. that some of the resistance that we find by allowing critical race theory in mm-hmm. American public institutions, I believe that if I heard Brad say, and I wrote this down. Brad is speaking as an individual. I'll Brad here. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about history. Not he didn't say black history. I don't know much about history. Period. And I think that's most of <laughs> most of Americans' problems. Most of us have very weak historical knowledge. And what critical race theory? The way that some educators are introducing it, they're saying we're going to have to unearth some things that don't look good 
And many states have, re- as of November the 24th of this year, 29 states, we only have 50. 29 states have introduced bills or taken other steps that would uh, restrict teaching critical race theory. And I must tell you, the state of Texas, Oh, Lord. Come on now. <laughs> careful. Uh, Listen. Careful. <laughs> Say what you look. Speak freely. Because, honey. <laughs> cha. Man, we both love and hate Texas here in this room. It's just... So it, it appears, no, it's, it's a wonderful state. Uh, there have been so many wonderful things to, to come out of, of Texas. Mm. But uh, and Texas, in this sense, isn't so radically different from, from other states and that it has introduced, at least, and your governor is said to have signed into law mm-hmm. uh, a, a bill that actually prohibits teaching That's right. what they call race or sex stereotyping, preventing schools from awarding credit for student service learning with advocacy schools uh, groups, banning schools from requiring teachers to discuss controversial issues. There's no way in the world we can talk about race. Which means we can't talk about history. Because, I mean, to your point that you said earlier, almost every shape, even just looking at the landscape of America, almost every aspect of the American landscape, and we've talked about a lot of these components in our podcast, so I'll just reference back to things that hopefully our listeners will recognize, but, but like where the factories were located, which zones in a neighborhood were in, industrial zoned or zoned as residential, where the parks were located, all these things were driven by race, where the highways were put, where the railroad tracks uh, would go and how that would, like loans would be given on the one side and not the other. So like our the landscape of our cities, like the suburbs, the movement to the suburbs, where schools got placed, every feature, I mean, even just the American economy, um, like early on was in uh, half of the GDP of the South was humans, was black enslaved people, like half of the gross domestic product. So how can you say that that's uh, not going to completely shape the, um, like the economy of the South was slavery. Uh, And then in the economy in the North was largely uh, also based around slavery. It's just they didn't have the slaves. They financed and traded and still their economy. Insured. Mm-hmm. Mm. And insured, yes. And insured, yeah. And so <clears throat> so to neglect the teaching of th- like the hard parts of American history, there's no way to do that without missing the history itself. Like that it, it, they're so intertwined. Uh, I want to, I want to, okay, so we're not currently teaching that, you know, at least in our formal public educational space. I, I am a product of like Florida's public educational system. So not super great on the scale. I think we were like the third worst state ranked. I don't know how you rank that, but, but what, what's, how is it affecting us by not teaching it? And also people just not knowing it, like, as you know, I'm the I'm a product of it. Like, what am I missing out on? How would it even change my life? What's the benefit of actually knowing the history? Wonderful question. Brilliant question. Uh, so let's begin uh, here. One of the things not knowing a true sense of history does for many white folks, it, it gives them a false sense of accomplishment. It is that I am somehow where I am because of my soul effort. Mm-hmm. And that's incorrect. 
Uh, and, and so we see people like, and people are doing, I mean, in some ways, they're, they're trying to do the right things. We look at the example of Jack Daniel, the, uh, the whiskey maker, yep. the liquor maker, mm-hmm. and saying, hey, look, bro, look, as they were saying vernacular, bro, I'm not even going to lie to you. We get all of this from this individual black man. All the, everything that we know about liquor making, we got from an individual black man that they're now of giving a name to, whether it's the real name or a fictitious name. And there's an entire line, the uncle was the nearest line mm-hmm. that comes uh, as a result of that. We can duplicate that. There's a three-part series that the Associated Press, and I can share these this resources with you and send you the links if you don't already have them, entitled Torn from the Land, the Associated Press, the uh, Newswire service some years ago commissioned a study of land Mm. Land that had been directly taken or appropriated in other ways through chicanery, uh, uh, through violence mm. from black folks. All right. Mm. And the land, in some cases, one land uh, is a major league baseball minor league facility sits on top of it today. Mm. In other cases, there are multi-million dollar housing complexes that sit on top of. So wealth has been generated for many white Americans. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a sense of this because they they don't have this history. Another tragedy from um, not knowing this history is that for some white folks, there's a level of insensitivity uh, about the the downtrodden plot of many black black Americans. Mm -hmm. It is easy to drive by and see crackheads or however you may see some um, poor black people and see that as simply poor individual choices versus versus structural, the things that were built in systematically that almost determined Mm -hmm. that they could do nothing but where they are, Mm -hmm. right? The other thing that it does is it gives black folks a false sense of what they cannot achieve, uh, a sense of inadequacy, insecurity, that they think the only thing I could do is rap or dribble a ball or kick a ball or some other thing that white folks have for this particular time and period said this is acceptable space for, um, for black folks. But if we understood that we are scientists, that we understood Garrett Morgan, if we understood yes. uh, Ron McNair, yes. uh, if, we un- if we understood, let's take somebody who's living, uh, Mark Dean, mm-hmm. that little, you can all look this up. Mark Dean is said to have, he's a black man. All right, PhD in one of the major sciences, he is said to own one third of all of IBM PC's patents. Right? We don't know the the, the PC the, the way that we have it today without a Mark Dean. So if our folks knew that men and women who looked like them, Mae Jemison, this sister astronaut, I mean, we no no shade on Rihanna. All right. There's more than one way to uh, more Absolutely. than one path into greatness. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I hope, Brad, that I've answered a bit of, of, of the question. And then here's the other thing. I'm just going to get to it. Once we get to the bottom of this sense of history, my thought is absolutely. Now we need to talk about recompense. How about it? We need to talk about reparation, Repar- repairing, repairing the damage that has been done. Yes. Right. And it, it doesn't, I'm not talking about a check per se, but um, some of the things that uh, Garen just mentioned, where some of these factories are located, 
of the food deserts, these things many times being structural. So when you see black folks with diabetes and high blood pressure, stress being a major contributor to all of these diseases, right? Then we got to talk about how do we make this, how do we make the, the, the health system work better for black folks? Yeah. So... I just want to kind of bring in also, because this is also teasing where our next episode is going to be about the cost of racism. And I don't want to, you know, give away all the the goods we have for the next episode, but just want to tease a a little bit of that. Um, The racism also causes white people to generally want to avoid social and political policies that they see as benefiting everyone because there's a desire to kind of hoard the advantages that have come from historical racism. And so that actually leads to policies that are less economically efficient. And so, for example, nine of the 10 poorest states in America are southern states. There are former states that had racism (coughs) or that had uh, enslavement. And in many of those states, they have like a tenth of the libraries per capita of northern states. Like the northern states would put in more libraries. Something like that just shows in southern states, they're like, we don't want to publicly fund a benefit that black people are going to be able to use. Or the same thing we saw with swimming pools. We've talked about with swimming pools that many southern cities would literally pour concrete into their swimming pools when they were uh, desegregated because... Well, if we have to share the swimming pool with black people, we don't want it at all. We'll just remove it. And so there's this aspect of just the ways that we uh, basically shoot ourselves in the foot and just remove social benefits because they'll be seen as uh, like being shared. And white people, if they're not willing to repent of past racism and really see the dignity, the human dignity, the image-bearing quality of uh, the equality of black people, then there's this temptation to maintain the stories that, that white people tell ourselves about how we got here. And then the other thing is there's this thing called last place aversion. And they've done studies of this where they will get a group of people, say 10 people together, and they'll give them different amounts of money. And they'll give the people the opportunity to give the money away. Like you have to give money either to the person who has more than you or the person who has less than you. Like you can give it up one or down one. And in general, people will tend to give money to the people who have less than them. But what they found is that the people who are in second to last place will give the money to the people who have more than them. Because they know that if I give the money to the people who have less than me, then I'm going to be the new person in last place. I don't want to be in last place. I would rather benefit the people ahead of me than move into last place. So I think there's this temptation for poor whites historically in America to, I would rather choose policies that hurt me if it keeps black people below me. Like I will choose policies that actually like there are policies that actually would benefit like having more libraries, having better funded education and more equally funded education that isn't derived from just local property tax, but is federally funded so that it's like more even across schools. Um, Like there are policies that would help poor whites significantly that poor whites tend to be the most strongly opposed to, 
because they uh, because of racism, because of I don't want uh, to move into last place. I want to keep black people below me. And so then throughout history, there has been just a ton of cost to racism. We're going to get more into that next week. And it kind of, and it reveals from the beginning that, I mean, you just have to kind of admit it that, you know, we're Christians. And so we we're coming from a Christian worldview on all these aspects, everything that we talk about. Mm -hmm. And we would say that you're just not loving, like that's just not a loving perspective. So you and we're not called to do that. And so it, you almost have to just admit, hey, I'm not loving. And, you know, I want these policies to oppress this certain group of people, which is almost better. Like, that's honest. And that's what you actually think. That's great. But, like, most people don't want to be, I would say, don't want to actually say those things out loud. So they build the language crowd. around it. Yeah. Like the Southern strategy. They build language around oppression. And so... Um, one thing that I want to uh, talk about is because I think at the heart of appropriation is monetizing black people's pain. Um, they appropriated, our, our bodies were literally appropriated. Our wombs were appropriate. Like we were objectified and enslavement is the first, you know, that's the, that's the beginning of monetizing our pain, our suffering. But then when you go to how blues, and I love, you know, music history um, as a, you know, st- having studied music in college and just the history of music in America and how many of the so- spirituals, blues, work songs, chain gang songs, all these, you know, how black people couldn't communicate, weren't allowed to communicate on um, plantations when they were working. And so we created art from our pain. We would sing to each other. And in our songs, there was coded language on how to escape, on where we're going to meet, um, you know, at the end of the day and mapping out um, routes to uh, escape in our braids and cornrows that now have been Kardashianized. Um, you know, and I call it the Kardashian effect. That's one something I want to write about is the Kardashian effect. It's like there's a monetization of our pain, specifically for black women, how the standard of beauty has been whiteness and how we've had to straighten our hair and, you know, just go through these extremes uh, for societal um, acceptance in the workforce. But then now everybody wants, you know, we had to, we had to dress a certain way, look a certain way. Now everybody wants, wants these black, what, what they deem as black um, female body parts, you know, Venus hot and tot. They're like, that, that's what they're doing. You know, they want to take these parts of black women, like melanin and, you know, just the things that we, the, our fashion in the hood, the big hoop earrings, you know, the, the ghetto fabulousness, um, all the art and, and culture that we created out of pain, out of trauma, out of intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, cascading trauma. Um, we created beauty and art. Um, and now it's taken and it's made into something that's socially digestible. Um, even jazz, 
where, how jazz was born, but then Frank Sinatra and all these other, you know, they, they made a lady out of it. It's like, oh, jazz is har- a horrible out- art form, but now let's make a lady out of it. Oh, jazz is the best thing in the world. And then let's make it expensive for people to go study it and let's put a whole framework of music theorization around it. When black folks at church... They can outplay any, and I went to the UNT School of Music, they can outplay any UNT School of Music, uh, you know, person who went to school for jazz. We are jazz. We don't have to study it. We are gospel music. We don't have to study it. White churches wanting to take the black worship experience while, while deeming black men pastors um, theologically unsound, building structure around theology that excludes our worship experience and the way that we connect to God through the Hebrew story. I mean, brother, like, it's the, it's the monetization of our pain. But we're going to, we're going to, now we're going to sing gospel. Now we're going to, we're going to, you know, they're going to sing gospel. They're going to make it fashionable. They take everything that we do and they make it fashionable. And that's at the heart of appropriation. It's stripping, you know, we create this this out of our lack. Even the foods that we create now a lot of there are a lot of white soul food places. You know. And it's just crazy. They take the things that they have condemned us for and they repackage it, monetize it and continue to gain wealth. The TikTok dancers that come up with these amazing dances that get copped. And then they get the, you know, endorsements. They get the, 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 the spots on the, on the late night shows. Black women wearing the things we would do with our hair that was socially unacceptable. Now they can go and do it. And it's just, it's disgusting. I mean, I am so, I, I am enraged about, because it, 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 it's another way to stop us from growing, like generational wealth. It's just, it, it just, it's infuriating. Dr. Capone, I want you to speak to that, but can you also, in, in your explanation, kind of explain like, okay, because there's some things that happen like that, even now in like contemporary worship music, there's like an aspect of, of kind of what you're saying. They're taking in some of that gospel stuff from black church and then kind of fusing that together with, white, you know, what, with whiteness, with whiteness. But like, I guess when, how do you determine whether it's appropriation versus appreciation? Like, how can you, you know, obviously you probably aren't going to be like, well, you can just, you know, X, Y, Z cross this off the list. But like, right. what's a way that, that someone could, you know, not just assume everything is appropriated or, and not just assume everything is appreciated. And so what, what's a good way to kind of handle that? Good. I'm going to get that. I want to thank you. I want to uh, um, hit something that Katina said that I had written right before she said that. I think one of the ways that, excuse me, one of the ways that we can really make a, a dent and eliminating racism is to take away the financial incentives uh, that go along with racism. So if you were to imagine uh, a people full of confidence, by and large, um, what would happen if black men and women appreciate, really, truly appreciated their natural hair? Come on. What would that? What kind of money? How would that affect the hair care industry? Yes. The, the cosmetics industry overall. 
if such there wasn't such misery and pain that so many of us, not just black people, we're talking about black people now, bury in alcohol and the alcohol. And I'm not anti-alcohol. Mm. I'm just saying that right. we are, this is a way that we are coping because uh, we are by and large talking about oppressed people. Yeah. The prison industrial complex. When I was at Delaware State University, I led uh, a, a group of discussions in the prison at Smyrna, Delaware. And I, there was a, an awareness for teenagers who were flirting with uh, being lawless, and they would bring them in to try to scare them straight. Yeah. And so one of the prison uh, officials grabbed a guy and said, and told him, this is the kind of vehicle that I have on a parking lot. I'm going to tell you what kind of vehicle I really want. I'm counting on you to mess up to be here, right? Because this is how I pay my mortgage. This is how I do these other things. And so there's so much money in the prison industrial complex. The social workers, the the Bells Bonds people, the medical industry itself. Yeah. With the, with the sicknesses that we have, the illnesses that we have, the diseases that we have, the money that we generate from pharmaceutical companies. So there is a great financial loss yeah. if we make any real dent in racism. Yeah. That's why we, we, we're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed yeah. to have these conversations. You're not supposed to sit in the living room and say, let's try to figure this out. Let's tap into what we all read and hold to be true in terms of our spiritual beliefs and let's effectuate it. Yeah. Right. So I just wanted to make that point on the point of making the distinction between appropriation and appreciation. I don't know that I have much new to to add to that. I think there's a point where um, uh, clearly when you know that folks who are 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 creating this piece are no longer a part of the decision making uh, decisions, uh, when money becomes the primary reason that this art form is being moved forward, that's appropriation. When the very people for whom this art is supposed to help are no longer the center of that effort, that's no longer appreciation. That's appropriation. Yeah. And it, 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 it matters little if the person on the other side is so-called black or not. Uh, so I give an example because I wrote about it. And so I guess I'll never get any money from this man because I'm about to call his name. Uh, that's Tyler Perry. So uh, Tyler Perry, um, um, there is a, a book that's edited about Tyler Perry and my colleague, Dr. Jared Ball, and I contributed an article to this book. Mm. And in that book, we see Tyler Perry uh, emulating some of the most dangerous stereotypes ever. Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think it's probably not too far-fetched to say that his Four Colored Girls was one of the most anti-black films, uh, media, uh, medium uh, messages ever disseminated on any medium. It, yeah. was, it, was, it was atrocious. Yeah. And I, um, this didn't make the final cut, but in the first draft of the article, I literally compared uh, Birth of a Nation mm. and how it was received. The president of the United States, there was a, a, a literally an invitation for folks to come watch Birth yep. of a Nation Inside of the White House, yep. And we talked about some of the images in Birth of a Nation. Then we talked about talked about uh, the First Lady at the time inviting folks into the White House to watch Tyler Perry's uh, For Color Girls. And we talked about a black man taking his children and dropping it out of the way. I'm very familiar with the play by Antonzake Shande, so I'm absolutely I'm not, right. I'm You're not, not coming I'm for not, that. 
I'm right. I'm not even. I'm not coming for that. Yep. That's right. I'm not. I'm not doing that. Yep. Uh, but what Tyler Perry did there is consistent with his pattern of, uh, particularly the black male. He literally, in the character that he continues to create, Joe, that he plays that character, mm. he literally puts on makeup to make him darker, mm. to go along with the stereotypes of being a shiftless, good for nothing, pot smoking. Waste menace, right? Yeah. And so I, I'm I'm saying that to say that's no longer appreciation to to me. Not at all. That Tyler Perry is 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 making some very deliberate decisions, and then some of the decisions perhaps are not deliberate, and he's rewarded for those decisions. Yep. He's given the key to Hollywood yep. because he's not consistently put any images out of black people that would move the needle, that mm. would really try to to change the. Uh, the, the conversation about us. So, I mean, this is not, again, not meant to be anti-Tyler Perry. No. It's only meant to highlight a point. But the mm-hmm. danger of what his, some of his work has done, specifically in typecasting, casting black women and men, the stereotypes, it is, and there's that whole phenomenon of dressing up like black women. I mean, I'm sure you have a whole, <laughs> it's psychological, <laughs> like there's a whole thing with that. Like, where black comedians are dressed, male comedians are dressing up like black women, and it's it's a phenomenon. But um, that's for another day. That's for another day. But yeah, it's 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 a trip. So uh, one aspect, just to kind of like help our listeners uh, kind of hopefully see this pattern, that I just want to kind of get into this by saying, um, imagine that you are like an employee at a business. You come up with some innovative idea. Mm-hmm. the business owns that idea. They gain the benefit from that idea. And they might give you some like little trinket, some like little reward that actually is oftentimes going to be just a very small fraction of the actual benefit, the actual value of the idea you had. Mm-hmm. And then uh, take that concept and multiply that across the economy and see that that's like the way the world works, that most innovation, most value that's added the benefit of those values and ideas can easily be gleaned by the people who are in power, who control the institutions. And so even a black person who gain, makes a patent, if a black person invents something and makes a patent, we could look at that and say, well, they might make a royalty off that patent and they could get rich. They could get millions of dollars from that patent. But they're still going to get a fraction of the value that a white person with institutional connections could get from having the same idea and getting venture capital friends to invest in it. And then he owns the whole business. So instead of getting a royalty, he has the institutional power and backing to build the actual business and uh, become a billionaire rather than a millionaire. And those same white-owned, white-controlled businesses, in the case of the black inventor who has the patent, um, the same white-controlled businesses that are paying the royalties to use the patent are still making the lion's share of the wealth, of the benefit from yeah. the black inventor. Mm-hmm. So whether, like, like, yes, the black inventor will make money, but if the institutions are controlled by white people, then black people don't really have the ability to catch up if like this deck is so stacked in favor of like white institutions being able, white controlled institutions being able to like monetize everything. And so uh, like, f- uh, what is it? Three of the top 500 companies, CEOs are white. Like white people still 
control much of the economy. And um, many white people are mostly controlling the boards that are making decisions mm-hmm. about uh, like what the like who to give um, licensing to, like who to allow into their institutions into their trade. They're making the hiring decisions and promotion decisions. Um, and so there's uh, even small biases, even if a, a black person in an organization, let's say a major uh, company, even if a black person has only a small disadvantage to be promoted because of uh, some implicit bias in the company, if they have a small uh, let's say even just like a ten percent disadvantage because their manager is white and their manager is gonna you know tend to favor people who are culturally similar to him and like him because he's white and he relates to other white people because there's less cultural distance and so the white people are gonna have a slight advantage in promotion. Well, that that black person to move up, if they're overcoming a, a like a ten percent disadvantage there. And then a 10% disadvantage to move up to the next level. And then another 10% advantage to move up to the next level. Because at each level, it's white managers, uh, white institutional. uh, Just like the legacy of past racism is that white people control and are higher up in many of the institutions. Then there's this compounding disadvantage. So that by the time you get to the top, it's not just a 10% disadvantage anymore. It's like compounded where black people are at a bigger disadvantage to move up further and further into, into positions of institutional control. And then that white institutional power that is a legacy of redlining, a legacy of the, the fact that um, eminent domain was used 10 times more against black people than white people, a legacy of disproportionate tax rates, uh, property taxes was disproportionately charged to, to black people and then that money was used for uh, improvements only on the white side of town in many black towns didn't even get sanitary sewers while the you know the white towns were getting their roads repaved and improvements it's like there's this all this looting of black wealth that even if that looting is not actively happening now I, I, th- I think that um, there's just this legacy yeah that is set in, not in, set in stone, but it's, it's a legacy of past racism that continues and has, it reiterates generation after generation. Yeah. Unless we do something to intentionally change the structures to make it fair. And the loss, if we don't do that, is that black culture gets, uh, like on the cultural losses that black people don't get to actually create the things yeah. that they have the ability to create. Don't like how many black sharecroppers, like your parents probably were, had a brilliant capacity. Cause I mean, your, your mind, your education, your, right. what you've done shows like what they could have been if they were not stuck to the confines of having less education and forced into menial labor. Like what could your parents have been and invented and led, like, what companies could they lead? What, like, what could they have been if they had not been robbed of that by institutional racism and then multiply that across the economy? How many things we're missing out on? And that hurts all of us. That's a really important point. So, artistically, and I, I, I Brad, I don't think you're satisfied with my response. Uh, I don't, I don't think I'm satisfied with my response to you about really trying to distinguish. Uh, when something is appreciation versus um, appropriation. And so we can only wonder, perhaps now rhetorically, what would happen to so many art forms 
if they were not appropriated, if they were allowed to go their natural path, what would rap be like if you didn't have this incessant capitalist uh, finger and stirring the, the pot? Um, and then I would just reiterate that Soul Thieves, the book and the concept, really emphasizes that we absolutely acknowledge that appropriation often has financial reasons, financial implications. But that's not the most dangerous aspect of the appropriation. Mm. The most uh, dangerous aspect, and Gary, you just talked about this, is that you really are talking about interfering, moving, changing in an unnatural way the ideas, the minds, the values of a, of a group of people. That is something that is really, really dangerous. Um, and then, yes, it is true that these CEOs have power, great powers uh, in terms of what happens from an economic standpoint. But is what, what is also true under um, a white a racism under white supremacy is that national conversations are determined. Of the direction that the country is going, that that is often determined, not all the ways, but often determined by powerful white voices. So that if you consider, and I, I really, this, my students really got this, the New York Times, you probably could not select a more American iconic piece than the New York Times. It represents it represents America. It is, it's, it's been around. It's one of the oldest journalism um, organizations in this country. And this, we had a sitting president, a sitting president to stand on the, the world stage and rebuke the New York Times 1619 Project who rebuked critical race theory. And it was because of then-President Trump's efforts that many uh, government-funded institutions then took on this, 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 this um, mission to um, eradicate critical race theory. As we've said earlier, critical race theory is around, was around since the 1970s. But it was literally when, it was one of the last acts, official acts, that President Trump had made while in office was to write an official memo in which he rebuked critical race theory and commissioned a counter to the 1619 Project. And so now we have almost every state in this country that somehow has reacted to that one act and has moved, pushed conversations away from where some of those conversations were headed towards having these race dialogues, having reconciliations, having these these efforts to have our country recognize its historical role here. So I would just say that when we talk about soul thievery, it's not just about appropriating funds. It's about taking away the very essence of people's minds and their thoughts and their values as well. Yeah. So kind of wrapping up here, the question we like to close on is just asking you to kind of uh, picture our audience, speak directly to them. Uh, we have a multiracial audience, but it's the majority is white people, um, is uh, mostly who is listening. So imagine, I mean, we have probably about 20,000 white people that will hear this episode and just want you to like speak to them. What can they take away? How can they love better? I love what you said at the beginning that you, like that your goal or why you're here, your passion is for us to be better. What does it look like for us to be better? Uh, I would say to white America, first of all, thank you for listening. 
the fact that you are tuned into this podcast means that you are on your path to doing some really great things. So thank you. Continue to listen and to support. I would say that I would liken what, where we need to go with being in a relationship, in any relationship. Let's take a husband and a wife or two mates, two, two spouses. And there may be a case where one spouse has, in that relationship, has, there's a history of some abuse. But the couples decide that they want to work it out. The very first thing that they have to do is they have to sit and they have to talk to each other. They have to listen. They have to acknowledge, especially both parties, but especially the party that clearly has literal blood on their hands. They literally have to take the lead in listening. You cannot say with blood on your hands, um, uh, there is no pain. There is pain. And I would say to white America that you need to do this not because, not just because it's the right thing to do for black people. It's the right thing to do for yourselves. Absolutely. That your soul will forever be tormented, mm-hmm. that you will forever pay in every way possible. And I live in a city and for good white folks who want to live and send their children to good schools in the city, they pay a premium mm-hmm. because they have to have high taxes to keep out the undesirables. Right? Right, right. They have to go do some other things. So there are a number of ways. They get certain path, they get certain streets. They, they, they had better not drive through in Baltimore because these, these streets are literally dangerous. So you cannot, white America, even if you are in a so-called white state and a white territory, you cannot sit where you are. You cannot be where you are and, and, and think that this is, this is not affecting you. When you look at some of the troubled spirits coming out of young white youth, some of the violence that we see, the school shootings and the like, we've got to connect. Is there any relationship between this violence and the unresolved violence that white America has afflicted and continues to inflict on others? Yeah. Right? We've got to ask that question. Yes. So I would say to you, white America, let us continue these conversations. I would say to you, and I'm not, I'm not paid by, I don't have any financial interest in any theories or any projects, mm-hmm. but I really continue to point to critical race theory and the 1619 projects as wonderful examples of where to begin the project. Mm-hmm. So where you know it is possible, I employ you to support to go to, to your various school districts and say, no, we want to have conversations. If you don't want to use the name critical race theory, I don't care what you call it. Right. But we need to have these conversations. They need to be organized. They need to be in churches. They need to be in civic groups. They need to be in educational institutions. Our younger son recently applied to college. He graduated from high school, the class of 2021. I don't know. He applied to a dozen or more schools and literally more than half of them have statements on their websites about that institution's role in slavery. Mm. All right. And so, but that's good. It's Mm -hmm. good that Mm -hmm. there is the acknowledgement that the conversations are are, are taking place and we applaud that. We don't, we don't want people to feel ashamed. Then, Then I think my final piece I would say to white America is you have been provided a, I'm going to use this term, a false sense of security, entitlement, and accomplishments. You look at streets named after you. You name cities named after you. 
monuments named after you. And in many cases, these things that have been named after you, framed uh, around you, have at the root the oppression of Black people. And so you can't expect that Black folks will, will be healthy until we expand these conversations, sit civilly, and sometimes we are going to disagree. But we need to come back to the table together and we need to talk in love and in peace because we inherit this space together. <laughs> mm-hmm. And even if we were to leave this country, we still are connected to each other forever. Yeah. So let's be connected to each other in a healthy way. So how can we support and direct our listeners to support what you are doing? Well, one of the things that uh, listeners can do is to support this podcast. Thank Black you. History for White People. That is, I think it is incredibly important. I also think that um, a place to begin with perhaps understanding the effort to reframe uh, the discussion is the 1619 Project, the New York Times 1619 Project. Uh, in many cases, what has taken place in, in many over the years in some communities, folks have formed study groups. And I think that that's something that I would advise folks to do. And there are ways to come together. Um, they can be, quote unquote, mixed race, uh, or they could not be mixed race. You can just be where you are. It could be at a smaller family level. Uh, let us just say that some of these bands uh, in the school systems uh, are sustained. Well, they can't ban us from coming together in our homes, not in our churches, not in our synagogues, not in our mosques, not in our, whatever space that we occupy. We have the ability to come together and, and to make these discussions. There are a plethora of resources. So for whatever reason, we don't think that the 1619 Project is the, is the place to begin. And it doesn't even have to be some of the heavier spaces. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing at a personal level is we are, as a family, I mean, we are uh, going and we're visiting certain um, plantations. We're going to the mm. Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. We're going to Monticello in Virginia. There's so we're in a historic Hampton here in Maryland to see some of the physical spaces. I think it's important for folks to go out and take the Jack Daniels tour um, because those companies have to be supported. And I'm, I'm not saying go out and buy the alcohol, at least, I'm, I, but I am saying the fact that they are acknowledging their past. Yeah. That has to be supported. Mm-hmm. But we cannot say that we need to have these conversations and then when people begin these conversations, we don't support the, them or at least give them the, the back and if they come under attack. Right. So there are any number of ways that I think that uh, that effort uh, could be supported. And he's not going to say this, but... Yeah, so you're being humble and not... Yeah, not this book, no. Throwing out your book, but... Uh, <laughs> we'll put it in the show. Soul Thieves. <laughs> Bruh. Soul Thieves, The Appropriation and Misrepresentation of African-American Popular Culture if there were just one takeaway that if I say anything of value to anyone, and if there was one action item, if only one, there are a few that I would ask, but if there was only one, I would ask for your listeners to read an article that Bell Hooks wrote. Yes. Uh, titled Loving Blackness as Political Resistance. Mm. So that's the that's the chapter title. You can find it actually online as a PDF or you can find it in any yep. of her edited books. Loving Blackness as Political Resistance. And um, I really think that's the answer. Uh, So what I did with that, I had my students read that. And I had, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white. Mm. We're saying everybody needs to love black, for real. Not black culture. Maybe I'm getting more to Brad's question. We want to know whether it's appreciation or we want to know whether or not 
It is appropriation. Here's the question. Does it help black people? Right. Does it move black people forward? Does it move their agenda? Not a black person. Right. Right. What does this art do? This thing that I want to contribute to, what does it do to our effort to love blackness? So after our students, uh, after my students read this article by Bell Hooks, I have them do one of a few things. One of the things that I have them do, those of, of students who are studying uh, public relations, I have them design a national ad campaign that's built around love and blackness. What would that look like? What would the messages be? What would the hashtag be? What would the, what would the public what would the uh, public service announcement look like? Or I have them choose a uh, to write a letter as if they are the sitting president of the United States. It doesn't matter who the president is, in which the president is standing out and he is saying to the world, beginning with this country, we've got to love black. Um, we got to love black people. We've got to love blackness. In order for our country to survive, this is what we have to do. Because I would say to white America, uh, as I'm talking about, this is a blanket statement. If you could love black people, you can love anybody. That's it. That's because it. you historically have not had any group that you've hated more than black people. Exactly. So if you could get to a point where you can truly love, at least respect black people, hell, how about just not terrorize them? Then we are now making progress towards other aspects of humanity. So that's that's in a nutshell. I would say we could begin with reading that article, loving blackness mm. as political resistance. What does it mean to love blackness? And then the other side of that is uh, she quotes the black. We talked about black theologians earlier. She quotes James Cone, a mm. black liberational theologist. Mm-hmm. And listen very carefully to my language. I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm about to say. I don't want any mean hashtags sent to me. (laughs) Um, James Cone says what America must do is to destroy whiteness. Not white people, but whiteness. Yep. Because whiteness has built in it this entitlement, this sense of oppression. This is sense of disproportionate, unwieldy power. And when we destroy whiteness, we, by definition, we attack the, the oppression, we attack the power. And that is what needs to be changed to bring this back to the center, not the political center, but just a humanity center. Well, and loving loving black people and, well, loving blackness means loving blackness in the way that blackness wants to be loved. Like, when you are loving someone, it's it's, you know... You can go out and buy a million roses to somebody who's allergic to them. Mm-hmm. And you think that your performance, you love your performance and your act more than you love the person. And then get angry and say, why you don't like the? I spent all this money on these roses. Like, why, why come? You don't like them. Because this is my, uh, this is, I'm loving you. But it's like, no, you're killing me because you already knew that I was allergic to roses. I done told you. And I actually love sunflowers. And that's not an act of selfishness on the person who is telling you. Like, when you love someone, you love them, you consider the ways that they desire to be loved. Otherwise, it is not love. 
Because a classic abuser, a classic abuser can go and buy flowers after they beat somebody. That's not an act of love. And so you got to leverage. Love has to be leveraged in a way that honors and bestows dignity to the people who you're trying to love. You don't just plop yourself in, I'm going to go to somebody's house, they don't drink wine, and in, in an act of love, I'm going to take them a bottle of wine. When they don't drink it, what is that? What is that? Just so you can say that you did something. And I think that's where that's the problem. That's the problem is that white America said, well, we gave y'all Martin Luther King Street <laughs> and Malcolm X Elementary, and we yeah. gave y'all this and that. We stopped making y'all sit on the back of the butt. Like, we ended, like, like, what more do you people want? But you have not loved us according to the way that humans should love humans and you've continued the systems of oppression and you won't acknowledge the emotional labor, you know, the toil. Outstanding. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I'm talking about, you know. I have a question for Garen and Brad. Mm -hmm. Do you think... I defer to Garen, whatever you're about to ask. (laughs) Do you think that um, we're going to get this right? Are we going to be able to live together, black folks and white folks in this country? harmoniously. I think that I am not super optimistic about white people coming to a place of true repentance and love in a large scale way. There are some things that give me hope and there's some things that uh, just seem like continued entrenchment that it's hard to know how we get past it. I think that some of it is just hard to tell because it could, it's kind of like, you know, a balancing act where the, the, the you could fall on either side of the fence where we could, like looking at the at politics, we, we could move towards a true multiracial democracy that I think would in time move us towards equity and equality. Um, but I could also see just like a movement away from democracy um, that would, just continue like permanently entrench uh, the advantaging of whiteness, um, and am I? I don't know which way we will go, and I feel like it's kind of unknown and undetermined. What about you, Brad? Well, I'm not gonna have a better answer than that, but I think, I mean, I'd probably echo the same things. I think I'm not like, you know, as I'm not like, oh yeah, you know, I'm not confident. I am also kind of on the side of like, and we've talked about this, like my wife and I have a history with the foster care system and and, uh, taking care of foster care kids. And so, and that system is so messed up. Like I have zero hope for that system. Like there's no way anybody's fixing that system. So it's just get in the system and do the work, do what you're supposed to do, move, try to move forward your little part. So I think about that with, with this country. And then I have in that, like there's a, there's some statistics and of course statistics are just numbers, but like they say, like however many years a kid spends in, in the system, uh, it takes them about that long to adjust to like a normal life. So like if, if there's a foster kid, who has been in the system for five years and they come into your house, it's probably going to take five years for them to be like a somewhat of a normal, emotionally psychological person to adjust to your house. Like, so I would think like our country, you know, 400 years made some progress. We've, well, we've made a lot of progress in 400 years, but like 
I feel like it's going to take another 400 years to like get us to a normal, psychological, healthy perspective. So I don't think in my lifetime, no way. I don't think we're going to do that. I think there's pockets of it. And I think that there's a higher bar set for the church. And I think that if there's ever a place that's going to going to do that. And, and I don't mean the church like the big C church, because I almost probably almost seem a little bit hopeless for that. Yeah, but I, I do too. think there are little C churches that, that do this and they're not going to be the sexy churches. They're not going to be the, you know, the huge, you know, they're not going to kill it on social media. And I think, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. that there are pockets that do that, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not like overly optimistic, but I, I do. Yeah. It's like, I'm not hopeless. But um, yeah, I think the colorblind America defense of the permanent perpetuation of racial advantage for white people means that black people will always have, I think, in the current American system, like some kind of opportunity to like access a piece of the American dream. Mm-hmm. But I don't see black people ever having like equal access to it in the like the current system without white people like at some level having a heart change or repentance because we're actually not making progress towards that. Like black people uh, the, the income of black people in the last 30 years has grown by 0.3% a year. And it will take 200 years at that rate for black people to reach parity with where white people are right now. Now. So it's like we're not moving closer towards income equality or towards equal opportunity. And, and income is can be a measure of opportunity because you can use your income to generate opportunity. Um, so it's like we're not moving the right direction as a country. And that's why I say, and, and also you see like on... Um, on the on the right, a lot of movement away from uh, democracy, and so like I feel like that could go either way, where we could eventually get to the point where uh, democracy is eroded, or we could get to the point where democracy actually like change can be voted in that would actually move us in the right direction. But I don't, um, I don't know which which way it'll go. I, I don't think it'll ever. Go. I think white people in their own psychology right now, the defense of the system does rest on colorblindness, and white people can still in that they white people want to feel like good people. They want to feel like they yeah, are absolutely like morally good, mm-hmm. and so white people aren't going to be able to feel morally good and uh, like cross certain lines. Yep. And so I think there's certain lines that white people aren't going to cross in our context. I don't think it's going to move to where it has been in the past. But I think white people can feel morally good and feel right and colorblind while still maintaining advantages for themselves and still reaping the lion's share of the economic rewards. Um, and so I feel like that mentality is entrenched. And I don't, um, I don't want to be, you know, Overly weighed down and burned <laughs> to yeah, where it's yeah, like, yeah. but it feels like there's uh, a lot of work to do, and it's not it's not guaranteed that we're going to like the work needs to be done precisely because 
uh, like I think a lot of white people want to live in a worldview of like, well, basically we're drifting in the right direction since the civil rights movement. Things are just getting better and better. And it's like, that's not guaranteed that the arc of history is long been towards justice in many cases, but that's not guaranteed. Like there are times and places in history where like you can look at cultures in the past and see that their arcs didn't always bend towards justice. Like that's not something we can just take for granted. Mm -hmm. The arc bends because people bend it. Like people go about that work. Yeah. And people through their blood, sweat and tears and their self-sacrifice and through loving and uh, like love growing, we bend it. But it's it's not something we can just take for granted and say like, yeah, we're going to get there. Again, thank you. I mean, I literally cannot say this uh, enough. This is genuine. This is reassuring. Um, and I hope I'm 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 not terribly optimistic. Hmm. And often when I am called to be a part of discussions like this, and sometimes I feel, and I do not feel this way from you. Thank you. Thank that, you. Uh, my white guests, my white hosts want me to assure them things are going to get better. And I, I can't do that. Um, first of all, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't see that happening. Right. Um, and then maybe another conversation, maybe another part of the conversation that you continue among yourselves is, well, what are the other options? Hmm. Because this is, I don't see this as very sustainable. I mean, I, I deal with, these are university students, but these students come to me and the level of social abuse that they have suffered, mm. uh, what is happening, not just because they are, this is what's happened to them as American students, mostly mm. from public schools, is, mm. a, is a tragedy. Mm. We can, this is mostly true for most American children. Yeah. But then what's hap- has happened to them as black students, what they, I mean, they're, I'll, I'll stop there in terms of what I want to say about the, where they are. But, um, so I would just ask you all to think about what are the, what are the options? Hmm. And I don't see it getting any better. I, I see an increasing levels of social and physical oppression and death that will continue. Yeah. And I live in Baltimore. Yeah. And while, you know, I'm quick to remind people we're more than the wire, we are partly the wire. Right. And and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's real. I mean, um, I've been in my, young, in my younger days of twice the uh, victim of, of armed robberies. My sister was in a, in a club. She was shot in a club. My, my father was held at gunpoint at his job. Um, we moved into a neighborhood, my family did, to try to make that neighborhood better. There were murders next to us, shootings two doors down from I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rear, we're trying to rear children in this environment. Yeah. And there are white folks moving into the neighborhood too. Um, and, you know, it just, it's, it's just hard work. It is hard work. I have I've worked with folks who uh, started their own charter schools and, and independent schools to try to make things better. It is hard, hard, hard work. Hmm. It's work for which sometimes we don't see the rewards in our lifetime. Come on. So um, I just applaud you. Thank you. Continue the conversations. We need each other. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing the cost of racism. We'll leave you with this quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel. Racism is man's gravest threat to man, the maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. 